Hey everyone, it's Landon. The sound on this one's a little sketchy and we apologize for that. However, the content in interviewing Andrew was so great that we didn't want to redo it. We promise to have the audio fixed on future podcasts by January. Thanks. Hello, it's Monique again. And Landon. And we have... we. Big demand. We brought Andrew back because when we were uh, talking to him, we started talking about so many things that we thought that it would be great to have him back again. So and little does he know we have six others planned for him. I know, so. poor man. Yeah. We've sucked him in. We've dragged him into the Nursum uh, family. It's so. perfect. I could talk about this stuff all day. <laughs> so Andrew, why don't you introduce yourself again and perhaps off. Off the uh, podcast, we were talking about some of your interesting links to different podcasts, and perhaps you could just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so first, uh, for those of you who didn't hear me from the last podcast, um, I'm Andrew C. I'm a, the, your neighborhood-friendly blood bank director over at Vancouver General Hospital, and uh, I used to work as a hematologist out in Ontario. Um, so just as a follow-up for kind of the peak, uh, those of you who listened to the last podcast for Massive Transfusions, um, we actually, as part of a Canadian Blood Services initiative, we worked on actually a, a collaborative with uh, the uh, emergency site uh, CanadianEM.org. Uh, so they put a lot of useful stuff for um, you know the emergency practitioners. And what we did was we uh, we essentially tried to create a curriculum around treating patients with bleeding and treating patients with clotting. And we crowdsourced our uh, curriculum or topics through a social media kind of blitz uh, or a needs assessment, right? And based off of that, uh, we've also tried our best to try to gear it more towards the learner rather than towards the expert. So uh, we actually start out by having the expert write the article and then we'll send it to a peer to, for peer review by a, a junior learner mm -hmm. just to make sure we're targeting you know the right everybody the yeah. right the right group right yeah um, and then that's uh, so rather than having you know an expert write what they think is interesting we're trying our best to gear what is uh, needed for your common everyday practice that's understandable you know no coagulation cascade diagram on this sort of thing. <laughs> Well, we did do a podcast, do a podcast on the clotting cascade. cascade. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Trying can, to make it simple. You yeah. can check that out, but at this site, you won't find it. Oh, good. But it's more <laughs> practical application, it yeah. sounds like, Andrew, to me. And the cool thing that we're launching alongside this uh, this uh, curriculum called Blood and Clots, so if you, if you type uh, Canadian EM uh, blood and clots in Google, yeah. you'll find it. Okay. Um, the uh, other thing that has gone alongside it is uh, there's a podcast being planned because the worst patients to treat are the ones who are bleeding and clotting at the same, same. time. Uh, so really, uh, the podcast is really meant to discuss really difficult cases where this is happening mm -hmm. and to kind of bounce ideas between different specialists about how they would handle it and mm -hmm. basically come up with a common care plan. So we think that's going to be really useful to your, your everyday practitioners because yeah. there's no evidence guiding any of this stuff so at the very least it's almost like having your friendly expert hematologist cardiac surgeon and so forth next door right that sounds great cool. yeah yeah so today um, Andrew what we the last time you were here we talked about massive transfusion protocols with yeah. people that are bleeding and I think we want to talk really about the other side of the spectrum about restrictive transfusion yeah. um, triggers yeah. And kind of blood management and really uh, I look at it as the last one was about keeping you in business and this one's about putting you out of business yeah, yeah it's a little bit like that isn't it yeah. yeah so that the other people 
can have the blood. I don't think that that was the purpose for the restrictive transfusion oh, triggers. Well, I haven't heard it yet. Uh, yeah. So anyway, so Andrew, perhaps you could explain what that actually means. Well, first of all, I just like to point out you're totally right that in transfusion medicine, <laughs> we I knew he was going to resonate with that. <laughs> we we ask people not to do our namesake, which implies we're going to go out of business sooner or later. But I think we all feel strongly enough about this that we're willing to do it anyway. <laughs> Good for you. Um, you know, why don't I, I think uh, so? Maybe before I start, I'll talk about uh, this whole idea about patient blood management program. I love general. it. Yeah. And and the way I uh, I describe it is, you know, mostly it's been done in the context of surgical patients, right? And uh, what you're trying to do is reduce the amount of blood exposure for these patients. And the three pillars of patient blood management are really around minimizing iatrogenic anemia, i.e., stop take, drawing your blood when you don't have to. Okay. Um, just touching upon that very briefly, I find it very interesting. If you go to the ICU, they've done studies where you swap out regular size adult tubes with pediatric tubes, and you can actually prevent transfusion by doing that. Really? That's how much blood we take. Wow. Okay. Um, the, the, so the second pillar is around optimizing preoperative anemia. That is, if you can find something to fix anemia, that's the best thing to do. The third part is around preventing transfusions as best as you can, and that's by adopting what we call a restrictive transfusions trigger strategy. Okay. So again, thinking broadly about patient blood management, uh, there's this actually really interesting study that again is a meta-analysis, a collection of a whole bunch of other studies that actually shows about a 10% relative decrease in mortality just by doing these three things. Wow. And so why don't we put this in context? So 400,000 surgeries happen in Canada every year. Um, we don't know the mortality rate of all those surgeries, but across, you know, in this meta-analysis, the mortality rate was about 10%. So about 40,000 patients die a year from surgeries, right, uh, for a variety of different reasons. So if you have a 10% relative decrease in mortality, you can save 4,000 lives per year yeah. just by, I would argue, doing your job like doing and not nothing. Yeah. And doing nothing <laughs> and, and transfusing only when you're supposed to. Mm -hmm. And to put that number in perspective, 8,000 people die from diabetes every year. So oh, wow. every large, medium to large size hospital probably has a diabetes program, yeah. but you don't see this uh, patient blood management program in every hospital. And, and my personal opinion is it's a bit of a crime that you don't have a patient blood management program uh, in every center, because yeah. I think there's no question that the evidence is there that this stuff saves lives. Excellent, right? yeah. Wow. And it's such a small fix, like just changing it to PD tubes. That well, seems like such a small just fix. Just even having a plan. Uh, again, back to the plan. <laughs> the it's always plan. about the yeah. plan itself. So, um, okay. when well, now I know what a blood management plan plan is. is. Yeah, a program. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, can we talk a little bit? Should we start and talk about? So, you've kind of talked about the arm about the. Um, anemia that we cause in hospital yeah. by taking too much blood yeah. and just even something as simple as changing it to pediatric tubes and then really thinking about is this going to change my management does this number um, actually make a difference in the long-term plan do I actually need to take this blood yeah okay. so you know just to add to that I think you know with the pediatric tubes I only bring that up as an example just because I think most centers because the infrastructure is built around adult tubes it's yeah. very hard to switch but I would tell you uh, all this can probably relate. Uh, what What is one of the first orders a uh, physician does when they admit a patient? CBC, CBC. daily, yeah. right? Why do you need this every day? Um, no, and, and I would argue um, there's lots of, uh, I, I, so I'll bring up a local example. Um, two of the largest hospitals in BC, uh, ours included, 
Um, I think you can find patients who've had more than 30 days of straight blood work, about 10% of patients. Wow. Right? Uh, and so this just tells you that, and, and nobody means to do it, but it's just because these orders happen on autopilot. Yeah. And I think it's really important that people are a little bit more judicious, or even when patients have stabilized, why not just do blood work, let's say every Monday, Thursday? Yeah. Right? Exactly. Uh, that way you're keeping an eye on things. Or when something changes. Or when something changes. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly right? Yeah. Huh. So interesting. So there should be some things to look at, some clinical indicators of why we're doing something. I always think tests should always be like that. It needs to answer a question that's going to change um, your management. Otherwise, why do the test? I totally agree. And I think some of, I think what guides it is, unfortunately, you know, uh, people have been penalized for not ordering the test yeah. or not doing intervention rather than doing the intervention or the test. But I think nowadays, you know, we have enough evidence out there to essentially say by doing a test or an intervention without benefit, yeah. uh, you're probably doing your patient harm. Harm, right? yeah. Um, hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the other arm that you talked about was um, pre-op. Anemia, yeah. and I found Andrew and I've met before because he was giving us some education uh, from for nurse practitioners at a, a blood boot camp. Yeah. And you were talking about pre-op anemia, and yeah. and so you and I were discussing. Well, if somebody's slightly anemic, can we? And we know they have surgery planned. Can we start them on iron pills preoperatively? Uh, and would that make a benefit? Would that decrease the need for blood during surgery? Yeah. So the first thing uh, I would point out is, uh, you know, uh, pre-op anemia is just a risk factor for death. Yeah. We know this. Yeah. Uh, even mild anemia, so even if you have only like a 10 to 20 point drop mm -hmm. in your hemoglobin compared to normal, it's a risk factor for death. And you know, people wouldn't think that because you know, if you have a hemoglobin of let's say 110, you've got plenty of reserve to transfuse if you're yeah. transfusing at a cutoff of 70 or something like that, yeah. right? Uh, but it's actually a risk factor for death. And uh, there's this, in Canada, we really have a, a large sort of quality improvement database called the NSQIP or the NISQIP database. Okay. And, it, you know, really that data, when we look at it closely, there's a, there's a great study that I think that was published maybe about two years ago that suggests that um, after you adjust for all the factors, your mortality rate doubles when you transfuse. Right? And this is even when you adjust for anemia, because a lot of people will criticize this and say, well, you're not, the patients do worse because they're anemic, not because you transfuse them. No, right. when you adjust for the anemia, patients die from transfusion. Really? Right? So I would probably say, you know, for this audience, uh, the biggest thing I would say is that if you have a pre-op hemoglobin that is less than 130 grams per liter or normal, you should question whether or not you should have a referral to a patient blood management program. Oh. If your center doesn't have a patient blood management program, you should demand it. <laughs> <laughs> How does that work if you have somebody? So say this person comes in, their hemoglobin is 120, yeah. let's say, and now I've asked the blood management program to come in and see him because they're going for a surgery. So the most important, I mean, one of the important aspects is to actually schedule a pre-op uh, pre assessment, you know, okay. whether it's through anesthesia or so forth, um, bef you know, a fair bit before the surgery, so you actually have time to plan around yeah. it, right? And the whole idea is hopefully during one of these visits, you would find out whether or not your patient is anemic and they have a fixable reason, Okay. right? And uh, if that's the case, then when you refer them to the patient blood management clinic, different clinics usually have different criteria, uh, also dependent on the surgery. Um, there's two um, main therapies people typically do, uh, 
Uh, one is iron, mm -hmm. um, and that's important because red blood cells are largely comprised of iron. Right. And then the other one uh, that people often try is erythropoietin. Okay. So okay. for those of you listening who don't know what erythropoietin is, it's a, a, a protein or a hormone, I guess, kind of made by your kidneys that basically tells the factory of your blood cells, your bone marrow, to produce more red cells. Okay. Right? Yeah. So those are two different ways to do it. Um, most of the one I'm going to talk today is mostly around iron. Okay. Okay. Uh, in regards to iron, um, so the two different formulations are out there that you kind of alluded to, Monique. Yeah. It's oral versus IV. Um, oral iron, generally, if you have an iron deficient patient, mm -hmm. uh, it'll take about three to four weeks. Okay. Generally, okay, to replace your iron source. Um, you take this on an empty stomach with vitamin C. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and uh, one of the questions I often get asked is uh, do the common iron salts like ferrous gluconate, ferrous fumarate, what about those compared to the newfangled uh, iron um, formulations of there? Yeah. Team iron, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. What I generally suggest to people is that treating iron is a bit of an art. Uh, so yeah. what I find is that uh, you have to try a whole bunch of different things before you find what fits for your patient. Okay. And there's no evidence that uh, these other formulations of iron are more effective, mm -hmm. but I would say most people find that the oral iron salts are uh, not tolerated from a GI perspective. Okay. So if those don't work out, keep on trying things until something does. And you know, the thing I always remind people to do is that uh, set up the expectation to your, your patients that they're going to have to try a couple different therapies. Okay, right? to get one that works. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so you need at least three to four weeks knowing. Yeah, okay. and the best, if, when you look at the evidence about repleting iron and what it does for pre, you know, what it does perioperatively, um, there's observational studies that suggest that the, you can reduce transfusion pre-op. Not a, no, really no evidence post-op, and the best benefit that you typically see is if you have at least two weeks uh, okay. before the surgery. Uh, you want to aim for more because, as we just said, you know, it takes about three to four weeks, weeks. for it to work. Okay. Uh, the second thing is that um, with uh, iron deficiency anemia, best single test to do is a ferritin. Okay. Yeah. Lots of people use a serum iron, and that would make sense to check iron. Why yeah. would you check the serum <laughs> iron, right? Yeah. Um, but really, the ferritin is the best uh, single best test. Uh, I would say if it's less than around 30, uh, okay. you should really be considering iron deficiency anemia. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and consider working it up. The, the problem with serum iron is it's, it's quite labile, so it just changes it throughout the day. So, um, you know, it's really not a great marker for what your iron stores are. Mm -hmm. um, and then, then once you replete your iron stores with oral iron or any iron, you should probably see your hemoglobin rise about 5 to 10 points every week. Oh. Ideally. Wow. wow. That's ideal. Yeah. yeah. So would you say that if you were in hospital, should they just keep on giving you iron? Uh, while you're, no, like once you've had surgery, can you just take PO iron as part of your post-op like order set? So it's interesting. I, I would say there's no evidence behind that per se, oh, okay. right? But two things. One is that um, you can certainly assess people for iron deficiency yeah. post-op as well. And I think, you know, it's not, a, um, it's not a bad idea. As I said, it usually takes a couple different formulations of iron before yeah. you find something that works for somebody. Yeah. It's not unreasonable to try something in hospital, but I would, uh, it's not something I push uh, for greatly Great. because there's not okay. a huge amount of evidence for it. Pre-op is really the big period you, you need to capture. 
That's right. interesting. Hmm. Did, you, did you know that's I a lot I too? I know. It's I find it quite fascinating. Blood this whole blood management. To, I know. Now I've like been schooled. So, but can last. you tell me the difference though? If you take so you said with PO, yeah. it takes three to four weeks. It goes up by five to ten yeah. per week. Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. yeah. What's the difference if you give it IV? Yeah. Again, great question. So if you uh, give IV iron, um, anecdotally, you know, uh, typically you see your baby red cells or your reticulocyte counts, yeah. uh, that usually starts to rise in about a week, right? Okay. Um, the, you know, how many doses of uh, iron you need to give uh, to replete the iron source, it depends how low you start, obviously. Okay. Um, my sense, though, is that, um, you know, once the iron stores are replete, again, you'll see that five to 10 gram increase, mm -hmm. um, and it's a lot faster to hit uh, or to fill your iron stores with IV iron than it is for oral iron. So okay. uh, the, the, the scenarios I generally recommend IV iron for is, first of all, if you can't find an oral formulation that you that your works. patient can tolerate, okay. right? Um, so let's just say even uh, for pregnant patients and things like that, right? I find vast majority of oral uh, formulations just, just don't work, yeah. right? Um, if they can't absorb, so patients who've had bariatric surgery and things like that, whatever formulation you give, probably not gonna work. Okay. Um, if you have a short time to surgery, so within two weeks, definitely I would be considering IV iron first. Okay. Um, if you have anemia, you already know that the iron stores are not only low, but your, your factory for red cells can't even produce them properly. Yeah. So you need to fill that up quickly with IV iron. Okay. And then also if you have ongoing bleeding. Right. So as you can imagine, if you're having ongoing bleeding, you're losing iron based off of your blood rate. So not yeah. only do you need to replete what you've lost, you're, what you're losing currently, but you also need to replete the low stores at the same time. So IV yeah. iron generally is a lot more effective for that. Okay. Hmm. Is there a, so obviously a lot of our patients in the emergency departments didn't plan to uh, come in with whatever they came in with yeah. today. So, so I have, uh, you know, Granny Fufu who's fallen and broken her hip or her femur, and she's anemic. Is there a benefit? You know, we have a choice. We're going to take her to the OR tonight, or we're going to take her to the OR tomorrow at 10 a.m. Is there a benefit to IV iron right now and waiting 12 hours? Like, is there any benefit quickly to someone who needs? semi-urgent, obviously emergent surgery, yeah, you don't sure. care, but some semi-urgent ortho type of surgery, is there a benefit to giving a dose and even waiting a day or? I probably would say with IV iron, as you said, as I said, you know, even to make your baby red cells, it usually takes about a week, right? right. And then you start to see a rise in your blood count after that, right? So kind of delaying this your surgery for half a day or a day is probably not gonna work in time. Mm -hmm. There are kind of um, small studies that suggest you know, if you have even a couple of days before the surgery right. and you give uh, large doses of uh, erythropoietin uh, stimulating agents plus iron, maybe your post-op hemoglobin does a little bit better. That's a little <laughs> bit controversial. Okay. Um, but I would probably say in that setting, get your patient to the uh, OR, don't worry about the iron. Okay. Yeah. And again, most of the studies that have been done around IV iron uh, mostly look at pre-op iron, not intra-op or, or, you know, close to the surgery and then, or post-op, right? Yeah. And most of those studies uh, basically show a decrease in transfusion requirements as well. Oh, okay. So that leads to the next thing that, that I found really fascinating when we were talking, um, Andrew, was this whole concept of 
um, restrictive transfusion triggers. Yeah. Because now that you've said that, so we have Granny Fufu who is maybe, uh, comes in with a, a lower hemoglobin, but then goes for surgery and bleeds a little during surgery. And then here she is post-operative and her hemoglobin is 80 now. Yeah. And now, you know, people are panicking like, oh my gosh, here's poor old Granny who's now anemic or more anemic, and her hemoglobin's only 80, I gotta call the doctor, because we need to get some, you know, what do we do do now? Uh, We need some, we need to give her blood, don't we? So, there's actually a trial that addresses Granny Fufu's specific situation. Oh, yay! (laughs) Granny Granny Fufu got her study, I hope that they have some weird letter combination that it's called the Fufu trial. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna disappoint you, but why don't we start from the beginning? Um, so, so first of all, I think maybe let's answer the question of what is a restrictive transfusion trigger, right? Excellent. So, yeah. uh, once upon a time, um, you know, people used to say uh, to transfuse their cutoff of about 100 mm-hmm. and to give two units at a time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that practice, I think, uh, goes as uh, early back in sort of the 1970s, right? Okay. And uh, there was a landmark clinical trial that was done actually in Canada. Um, Yay, uh, Canada. Yay, Canada. Uh, that was published, I think, around somewhere in the mid-90s uh, that basically looked at uh, ICU patients that were anemic. Okay. It's called the TRIC trial, T-R-I-C-C. And what they found was that uh, restrictive, tra- they basically tried to compare restrictive transfusion, uh, which is transfusing to a cutoff of 70, versus liberal transfusion, which is transfusing to a cutoff of 100. And largely what they found is uh, the restrictive transfusion trigger either did the same oh. or actually better. Uh, most uh, uh, commonly in sort of younger patients, uh, less sick patients, and um, also uh, with cardiac patients as well. Oh, okay. Since that trial in the mid-90s, people have basically replicated that trial in a whole bunch of different settings. Even if you look at sort of the uh, last big meta-analysis that was done about two, three years ago, there were at least over 20 trials that, that were basically looking at this question. Mm-hmm. And if you put them all together, they show that uh, restrictive has no difference or worse mortality than 30, uh, at 30 days than a liberal transfusion trigger. In fact, if you look at the actual uh, where the trend goes, yeah. it actually trends towards the restrictive side having better mortality. And, and is really? this is this uh, just straight on a hemoglobin level, not whether it was a chronic decline or an acute bleed or correct. This was straight on a hemoglobin wow. level, and um, it's in, and so the thing too. I always remind people is that with a restrictive transfusion tra- strategy, if you look at just the clinical trials, they gave about fifty percent less blood compared to liberal transfusion trigger and. Mm-hmm. Consequently, uh, in many of these studies, you see fewer transfusion reactions, especially fluid overload. So okay. uh, the, the, we were talking about saline in our first podcast. Yeah. So I always like to tell people that giving a unit of blood, because just how, you know, of the contents of the blood being more viscous, it's actually kind of equivalent to giving about a liter of normal saline. So oh, people okay. often underestimate the effects of giving blood and fluid overload. Wow. Right? Um, I didn't even think of that, really. Yeah. Yeah. So... So again, people have done these trials in these areas, and uh, to kind of get into Granny Fufu specifically, I'm just going to cover uh, a couple of trials that yeah um, specific to poor old Granny, specific to poor old Granny, and a couple of situations I often get asked about. Okay. So one question I often get asked about is, what if my patient's sicker? Shouldn't you be transfusing them to a higher cutoff? Right? Oh, okay. And uh, first of all, the trick trial was done in ICU, ICU settings. Yeah. Yeah. So again, sick patients. 
another follow trial that was, I think, published um, somewhere in the last 10 years is called the TRIS trial. Hmm. Um, and basically what it did... Really creative with the letter. Exactly, right? <laughs> Trick, TRIS. Yeah. You're going to love the next ones I'll talk about later. Um, so they, they basically looked at uh, restrictive versus liberal and septic ICU patients. Oh, okay. And what they found is, again, no difference, right? So I always tell, I tell people, like, these are the sickest of the sick, right? Yeah. And they didn't even benefit from a transfusion. So, mm -hmm. uh, and we know from the TRIC trial that, you know, less sick patients uh, even did a little bit worse. Okay. To address Granny Fufu, there was a, um, a trial called the FOCUS trial that uh, randomized people to a cutoff of 80 versus 100. Don't ask why 80. You know, they just chose that. They wanted to, to be different. They want to be different. Exactly. <laughs> um, and what they basically found is, and they did this study in post-op uh, orthopedic patients, right? Mm -hmm. And what they did was uh, they had an interesting sort of a combination outcome of like a functional outcome that is like, uh, I believe it was like how long you could walk uh, for uh, 10 minutes or something like that. Mm. Um, and death, you know, implying that death is the same thing as walking. But <laughs> we um, the vast majority of these patients had cardiac risk factors as well, right? Okay. Or previous cardiac disease. And what they found was, again, the restrictive uh, trigger didn't do any worse in terms of functional outcomes or death. Right? Oh, okay. So a lot of people I often get from from uh, people is that you know should we transfuse them a little bit uh, more so we can increase the energy levels maybe they'll get out of the hospital faster zero evidence for that whatsoever. Really? Yeah. And that's actually backed by something called the Trist trial. They need a naming consultant. <laughs> exactly. I was involved in it. <laughs> Um, it, it's a, it, you know, I think it, um, uh, so this was a multi-center trial that looked at um, hematology cancer patients, uh, okay. some patients with leukemia, lymphoma, this type of thing. And they actually compared restrictive versus liberal, and they used quality of life scores as okay. their outcome. No difference. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you look at the trends, quality of life is slightly better in the restrictive arm. Really? Yeah. So uh, I would argue, you know, that setting, even to make patients feel better, yeah. I would argue generally transfusions don't work. And that makes sense if you think about it. So when your body, when you become anemic over time, yeah. so if you had a young patient and they started with a hemoglobin 130 and they've dropped 70, they're probably going to feel it, right? Yeah. right. If you have a patient that's kind of gradually went down to 70, your body adapts to it. Right, right. yeah. Um, and that's probably why people don't have uh, that huge amount of symptoms to go along with it. And the other thing is that transfusion can also lead to worse outcomes. So probably the biggest example I can think of is this upper GI bleeding. Yeah. Right. So um, uh, there was a well-known trial that did restrictive versus liberal in upper GI bleeds, and they found that the restrictive transfusion strategy actually leads to better mortality, that is oh, less okay. death. And actually, what is, this wasn't a trial that came out of nowhere. What they were finding in trials or, or studies that before this trial happened was. Um, when you give blood to a patient with upper GI bleeding, a lot of that stuff is because of variceal bleeds, oftentimes yeah. from liver failure. When you have liver failure, you have a backup of portal pressure uh, that goes into your varices. You add a large volume Long of blood, blood to it, you're just going to cause more bursts, blood. Yeah, right? of course. So these yeah. varices cause more bleeding. Okay. And so it's kind of counterintuitive. You know, it's counterintuitive. Yeah. You know, you're giving blood, but you're making them bleed, bleed more. more. And that's actually yeah. the truth in upper GI bleeding. Interesting. Yeah. God, that's so fascinating to me. Bring back the Blake Moore to you, see? <laughs> exactly. See, so the, but the question that you're, or maybe 
I would I would love for you to comment though, Andrew, because we keep talking about numbers. Yeah. Right. Eighty. 100. So is there like a, an absolute cutoff like, well, it's 80, but the gate, they, they look good. So yeah. why do I need to give them blood? Or um, it's 90 and they look terrible. Yeah. Should that be part of that decision making, pure, not just the number itself? Most definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, just to address the asymptomatic patient with a low hemoglobin. Yeah. Right? So I always laugh when someone has a hemoglobin of 71 and then they have a hemoglobin of 69 and then someone decides to transfuse, right? <laughs> because we all know that... The you, testing error. Yeah, we know that lab tests have error anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, and you just made it worse by taking, taking blood. Taking some right? blood, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, the, the funny thing is, so uh, we know from Jehovah's Witnesses that actually your hemoglobin levels can drop quite a bit more mm. and you your patients actually do fine. Uh, so Jehovah's Witnesses, I think, even go as safely as low as 60. Oh, um, wow. Some studies have suggested maybe even a little bit lower. And um, it's funny, even with patients with red blood cell disorders like sickle cell disease, actually they get transfused at very low cutoffs. Really? Right? Uh, just because for them, um, uh, some of the risks of transfusion blood are, are a little bit higher, right? So it tells you that these patients, again, with chronic anemia, mm. um, you know, your body gets used to it after a while. So there's no need to transfuse to try to correct them physiologically because their body has adjusted to it, right? Right. On the flip side, what do you do about symptomatic patients? Yeah. Um, so what I always tell people is that, remember, blood is used to carry oxygen to your vital organs. So think about it, what happens when you don't have enough oxygen that goes to your vital organs? And it'll start shutting down. Yeah. So biggest thing is probably from a cardiac perspective, you know, you start to get hypotensive, yeah. um, short of breath, Maybe chest, chest pain, pain. Yeah. discomfort, these things yeah. like that. But keep in mind, you know, lots of people have these things that are that occur, especially shortness of breath, yeah. irrespective of what their blood levels may be. Yeah, so let's just say someone has uh, shortness of breath, maybe they have CHF. Yeah. You're going to make that a lot worse by transfusing blood. Yeah. So you got to think not just what the symptoms are, but where did the symptoms come from. Yeah, right? exactly. Sort of syncopal episodes, you know. Yeah. Multi, you know, organ failure, you're starting to see the creatinine rise. You know, yeah. these are things that you might want to consider transfusing from. Right? Okay. The, off, the other question I often get asked is, uh, what do you do if someone's actively having cardiac, like a cardiac event? Oh, yeah. Um, basically, the jury's out right now. I think if you look at most expert guidelines, they all say to transfuse to a restrictive cutoff, but we've got no literature to back that whatsoever. Uh, if you look at retrospective studies, they're kind of more probably su- uh, suggest that restrictive is better, but uh, it's a bit of a wash. So there is a clinical trial that's looking at that right now, but I would probably say transfusing your restrictive cutoff is reasonable, and but no one would fault you if you chose a slightly higher target, like 90, let's say. Okay. Right. The other thing, question I often get is, uh, what are the cutoffs if uh, someone is bleeding or yeah, uh, the, on the operating table? Yeah. Also, no evidence to back that whatsoever. Um, so two things. One, in the operating table, again, we just have no good guidance whatsoever. Yeah. Well, it's and hard to assess their symptomology because they're yeah. anesthetized, right? Yeah. Very, very difficult to do around. Are you dizzy right now? <laughs> yeah, could be um, the ketamine. They <laughs> do, uh, you know, some of the cardiac surgery trials. Um, I think did look at uh, intra-op transfusions, and I think in general, most of the studies have suggested restrictive strategies are better. Yeah. But really, not a huge amount of guidance guiding that. And the other thing that you have to be careful of too is that when you have a bleeding patient, mm-hmm. um, I would question whether or not your hemoglobin level is actually accurate. Oh, that's true too, right? right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, when somebody transfuses to a higher cutoff in a bleeding patient, I don't necessarily fault them for that. Yeah. But what I would probably say in those patients, you know, if you're hitting over sort of the 
the 100 mark is probably not needed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you're kind of saying when we talk about restrictive, uh, so the studies for the post-op hip patient mm-hmm. um, looked at 80 yes. as the cutoff. Correct. So that's kind of the study, the research. Correct. But there is, the, the, others, the trick the said 70. Studies looked at yeah, 70. all the T. So the 70 studies, to yeah. 80 is maybe okay as long as the patient's asymptomatic. Correct. So if you have a hip surgery patient like, like uh, Granny Fufu, who we yeah. were just talking about, um, I think it's kind of silly that you're just going to transfuse uh, with us with a hemoglobin 76. Just right. The only reason why you're doing it is because yeah. it's less than 80. Yeah. And let's be honest, uh, appreciably, you know, a hemoglobin of 70 to 80 is yeah. probably about the same. Yeah. Right? Um, so I say if, you're do- if patients yeah. are doing if you're fine. okay with 80, you're probably okay, okay with 70. 70. Yeah. If patients, yeah. though, your general th- my general thought sometimes with patients is that, you know, if they're doing well enough, leave well mm-hmm. enough alone, yes. right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, it kind of goes to, you know, we've talked before about oxygen. And I think sometimes people think that about blood as well, yeah. is that... Well, it's it's good. Like if a little bit of blood is good, so a lot of blood is good, and they don't think actually that there are some ramifications or poor outcomes based on you doing that. Just like oxygen, if you yeah. give too much oxygen, um, it actually is causing harm. And so what you're saying is, if we give too much blood, it also can cause harm. Totally. Yeah. A, a couple things to, to that point. I mean, so uh, one is that. Um, one of my colleagues described it best. A blood transfusion is almost like a mini transplant, right? Ah. It's almost like you're taking somebody's, because it's true, you're taking somebody's yeah. blood and their immune system and you're basically you putting it into a different body. Yeah, right? absolutely. And so it's not, a, it's not a small thing. The second thing is, you know, I would just be reassured for those people out there who are uh, more leaning towards transfusion, maybe when they don't have to, is actually the general trend across the board is people are transfusing less red cells, yeah. right? Um, you're seeing this in the United States, you're seeing this in Canada, fewer and fewer are, are transfusing red cells, and maybe, again, transfusing red cells to the uh, appropriate group people. of patients. Yeah. Right? Well, I think that's important to know as well, because a lot of, the reason why we do this is to help a lot of our rural practitioners who deal with a lot of moral distress with we, totally. the, the we don't have this and going yeah. home thinking, I don't feel like I, I, you know, I had a patient with a hemoglobin of 80 and we had no blood and oh my goodness, I wonder yep. if they're yeah. going to die from that. And hearing those messages around, no, actually even, That's the trend. even in a larger yeah. center, this is the trend now. Yeah. And, uh, and the research backs it up. I think that that's it. very and important. It's, it's, you can go yeah. home now thinking, oh, okay, actually maybe that person will do okay. I find it so interesting. That story, oftentimes you're right, it's like the physician who stresses out and your patient's yeah. doing just fine. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> totally. uh, yeah. When, the, when the practitioner's heart rate's higher than the patient. Exactly, right? <laughs> you probably are the one where you Probably a name for that or something, you know? Something with a trip. Yeah, yeah right. something with a trip or a trip, <laughs> right? That's yeah. right. Or a tryst, uh, yeah. The last thing I wanted to talk about, and maybe it's a little bit of a, uh, not a philosophical point, but so I think in medicine, we're really great at things that have attributable risk, but not things that have non-attributable risk. So let me kind of back up to what that yeah. means, right? So, you know, I think about for, you know, for surgery, when we introduced anesthesia, it was uptaken really quickly, right? Because it was something that we could see yeah. happening right away that improved outcomes. But when you think about surgical hygiene, that took a lot longer to, to catch on. Because, you know, it's not as obvious that yeah. when you do your surgery, you don't have great hygiene, your patient dies of infection a couple days later. Who knows yeah. where that would have come from? Yeah. I think the biggest, uh, one of the biggest misunderstandings uh, about blood is it doesn't have risk because it doesn't have attributable risk. You know, a lot of the attributable risk we think about is, you know, do they have a transfusion reaction? Yeah. But I would probably say the most 
dangerous thing about transfusions is your non-attributable risk. It's about what all, you know, you don't know if your patient died, you know, from multiple hits that included a transfusion somewhere down the line. Right. And we transfuse so much. I mean, think about the United States alone. I think it, the number is at about 20 million transfusions oh, per year. Oh, my gosh. You know, yeah. if we think even just there's a small risk that's associated with transfusing too much blood. Yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe that doesn't matter to the patient in front of you. But over 20 million transfusions, that's going to matter a lot. Right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. So I always caution, and that's just human nature, right? Absolutely. So I, I, I always tell people, you know, even though the risk isn't obvious, the evidence is out there. You know, mm -hmm. this is something that, you know, uh, you when you give somebody a blood transfusion, you have to respect the fact that it causes harm if you don't have clear benefit for it. Yeah. And I think it comes to everything in medicine yes. or in nursing. Is that versus benefit. It is. Uh, and also to... Um, to your point that, you know, just because it's available to us does not yeah. mean that we use it indiscriminately, that we have to be respectful of the interventions that we have, thinking there might be some risk to this that I'm not even sure about. Right. And, you know, down the road, is this going to make a, a huge difference? And I think about, you know, thinking about it from a perspective very personal, if this was my, you know, family member, would I want this down the road 10 or 15 years that I've discovered that this is what's happened down the road. So I do think it is something that's really important. Um, there was a, a point that you made in our last podcast about the cardiac surgery that I just wanted to touch on because it does kind of play to that whole restrictive um, trigger as well and not needing transfusion. And you talked about giving TXA intraoperatively mm -hmm. and that decreased the need for transfusion. Right. And that comes to this point again by giving too much blood. Yeah. We're causing a problem as well, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, I always, I always say, like, there's two ways that you can uh, not have blood. Either you're not producing it or you're losing it, right? Yeah. Um, and so if there are th ways you are lo your patient's losing blood, yeah. you know, you can intervene to fix it. And I yeah. think your, your, your point is great in terms of tranexamic acid is a great option for many types of bleeding. Yeah. And uh, as I kind of alluded to in, or explicitly said in my last podcast, uh, the risks are extremely minimal. Yeah. Right? Um, based off of the published literature that's out there. Yeah. Um, so. And you also talked about putting TXA in orthopedic surgery. So yeah. if you're doing a hip, yeah. you know, maybe by putting topical mm -hmm. um, TXA during the hip surgery itself into the joint, who knows, right? Maybe there's a study in there. I don't know. I actually right? think I call it the trush study. <laughs> <laughs> That's not right. <laughs> I'll call you up the next time I have to think of a study. It will not start with a TR. TR. No, it won't. But do you think there is a study that says anything about I, that? You know, I, I have to admit, you know, uh, off the top of my head, I think, you know, intra or pre, I think uh, uh, pre or perioperative, I guess, yeah. TXA in orthopedic patients has the best evidence by far. Uh, oh, I know okay. we know, I think there was a systematic review that was published in the BMJ that actually okay. demonstrates that there's uh, decreased transfusional requirements. If you um, give TXA? If you give TXA. And really? I think um, many, I know um, when I was back in my center in Ontario, uh, if I recall, for all orthopedic procedures, unless there was a clear contraindication, mm. I was thinking about it. They yeah, start with the ground. They just, they just start with the ground? Yeah. They just start with TXA? Really? Yeah, and, yeah a friend of mine is an OR nurse and was talking about TXA, and he was sort of going, 
well, what's your big trendy deal about this? We give it to everyone. Like, yeah, oh, two really? grand spans. It's a very simple yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And then again, it goes to your restrictive uh, transfusion triggers, right? Yeah. Like, if we can kind of stop the bleeding, then we don't need to give more blood because it's not always the best thing for the patient. And then again, fixing the anemia before the surgery. Yeah. And then trying to figure out ways to uh, prevent pulling too much blood from but, the patient. Yeah. Wow. This is really this is interesting. Great. I know. Um, do you do you think? I think we're kind of at a natural. No, have, and do you I think have we no have questions. some more? Do you want to talk about? Should we start with your top three, or should we let Andrew, being our guest, talk about his top three that he wants to talk about? Oh, we better let Andrew start. Yeah. I, my top three. My brain is like exploding with so, so much stuff. Right it's so excited. I know. I wish yeah. you could see his face. He's all well, like. Guess, so one of my take homes that I said last time, and I'm a big proponent of. I, I had a lady here actually uh, a few weeks ago, and you know she was the typical. Oh, I've just been feeling weak and dizzy, and my GP sent me in because this isn't normal. And she, she waited in the waiting room. Obviously, she was like forty something. And uh, of course, the lab phoned two hours later, or however long. It's like, oh hi, we're calling with a critical hemoglobin result. Her hemoglobin is forty five. Like. Hmm. <laughs> like that great <laughs> so uh, of course she she got a bed and, and uh, in the meantime had already been referred to internal medicine for this weak dizzy NYD and and the inter- I thought the internal medicine specialist just I said well so what are we going to do with it does she need blood does she need this and he goes I don't know I'm going to phone someone smarter than me and we're going to have a conversation and I thought that's so great I love that we're getting to a point in healthcare where we acknowledge we don't all need to know everything. Yeah, yeah. And when I have someone, like, these are conversations that I can have. Even if you're in a rural site, someone's hemoglobin 75, and you're like, oh, is that symptomatic or not? Like, it's kind of a vague mm-hmm. story. Phone a hematologist and say, hey, can I run something by you? Exactly. And uh, I just feel like that needs to be, we need to get rid of our, our egos and our old system of, yeah. I need to know this because everyone's looking to me and just be like, okay, I'm, I'm lost. I'm going to phone someone. You know, like you, who spent multiple years of your life on this one subspecialty. Yeah. Yeah. Why, as why as a generalist, would I want to know that? No, I'm just going to phone that person who's going to yeah. get so all smart friend. on me and tell yeah. me what to do. And someday, yeah. they'll need my smart. Yeah, because so. it's complicated in yeah. that circumstance. Because you want to know why her hemoglobin is 45. Oh, Plus, do I need to treat it while I'm trying to figure out well, why? There's all those right? questions. It's like, I don't know. She's some dizzy lady. Yeah. <laughs> and I want the smart person. Well, does she have this? Does she have this? I'll go look at the blood myself. And I'll do blah. Great. Go for it. Because I'm looking at a weak and dizzy woman. And yeah. I don't know. Is that symptomatic? Like, she's not super dizzy. She's been yeah. sitting in the waiting room for three hours. And, and felt like this for two weeks at home. So I... You're sort of like, uh, I don't know. And, and the way I like to frame it is it's like you're not phoning somebody like smarter than you or smart. Uh, it's like everybody's smart in their own way. In their thing. I have like I have so much sympathy for all the general practitioners out there and all the stuff that they have to know. And yeah. I even think about my field in hematology. You know, I did hematology and then self-specialized in transfusion medicine. Frankly, if you ask me about a lot of like some of the deeper stuff in hematology, let's just say even bleeding disorders, I don't know as much about a uh, bleeding disorder expert. I would call them for help, right? Yeah. And I think you know, if subspecialists are calling other subspecialists for help, even sometimes within their own field, if you're a general practitioner, there is no way you should feel any shame whatsoever. Oh, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so, so that's always my take home. Yeah, like, like we have this knowledge. Let's let's uh, capitalize on it. Yeah, totally. And absolutely. be okay with the fact in ourselves and in our teams to go. 
you know, and I, I've said, you know, doing critical care transport, you're, you're kind of the head of the team when you show up. And, and I've definitely learned for in myself, like it's lonely at the top. Yeah. When everyone's looking at you, and that can be yeah. like a rural emerge, and there's one physician on, and four nurses, and they're all just looking at this doctor. Well, what are we going to do? Like that's a lonely place to be, right? Yeah. And so to have a have a team, a, a culture where yeah. you can be like, you know what? I'm I'm actually lost right now. I'm going to go call a colleague. Yeah. But what I do know is they're going to need some IV access, yeah. and they're going to need this, and we're going to need some good vital signs because that person's going to ask me. So let's. This is our plan, and, yeah. and we need to move to that culture. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Anyway, that's yeah. my take home. Even yeah. though it wasn't a take home. Yeah, but I'm gonna let you do it. <laughs> I'm gonna let you say what it's your one of things are. Well, <laughs> no, actually, I mean, no. I think it's a great take home because I think a lot of people don't realize that. You know, you think you're taught a lot about in transfusion as you go through your medical curriculum. Mm -hmm. I gotta be honest. You know, I wasn't taught. I didn't properly know how to order blood until I arguably started my fellowship. Yeah. Until, until yeah. some nurse came to you and said, you need to get consent. And you were like, consent? All right, well, I will do that. Right? Uh, the risk of a blood transfusion <laughs> is uh, whatever up to date. Uh, whatever up to date. Well, I, I mean, it's one of It's true. Like, when it's, we get new residents start, yeah. a lot of them are like, they do say, they're like, uh, I have no idea. I, I'm getting consent for blood I, transfusion. I, used, I don't know. Yeah. I used to joke that, um, you know, back when I used to order uh, blood products as a resident, you know, I would write something like transfuse two units, and then the nurse would ask me, how long would you want to run that for? Right. I said, I don't know. Whatever the hell you normally do it for. <laughs> Why are you asking me? Why are you <laughs> asking me? <laughs> it's July 3rd. I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, that's, and arguably, you don't even learn that stuff until later on in your training. And, you know, that's that's part of, in, in our field in transfusion medicine, why we're trying to just get out there and try to educate as many people as possible. Just because we know, we're not saying that people are, dumb or anything like that. It's just, yeah. you're not given the toolkit. Yeah, right? exactly. Right? Right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, my, my, my three take-homes, right? And I would probably just say, you know, uh, the take-homes from this is, first of all, just think about this broadly. You know, the less blood you can expose to somebody, probably the better for that patient. And mm -hmm. again, that's in the context of something called patient blood management. Right. The three arms of that are um, minimizing uh, unnecessary iatrogenic anemia. Excellent. Um, treating pre-op uh, anemia when you can, and then uh, re transfusing to a restrictive transfusion trigger. Right. right. And if we take all those things together, you will probably reduce, uh, have a, a relative reduce, a reduction in your mortality by about 10%, which mm -hmm. I think is pretty big. I think so too. Uh, the second take home point is probably around just, um, uh, you know, pre-op iron. Yeah. Uh, so really the big take homes is for IV iron, you can uh, use it specifically uh, when you need to get the, I, uh, the iron stores up. Mm -hmm. So probably um, big scenarios you want to consider is if you're not tolerating it, right. can't absorb it, short time to surgery, yeah. your patient is anemic ready because you have a lot to restore then, yeah. or, or your patient's bleeding yeah. uh, concurrently. Um, the last part is uh, you know the, this whole idea about, um, again, we know through over 20 randomized control trials, at least, I think more have been done since then, yeah. that transfusing to a restrictive tra transfusion trigger is, if not the same or better, than transfusing more blood. Yeah. And I think, you know, when people say, oh, I think maybe I'll try a unit of blood just to see if I feel better, I would argue, you know, from a 
you know, if you were to look at the standard of care, if you were to be judged to the standard of care, mm -hmm. the standard of care is restricted transfusion strategies. Right. So that's not an appropriate rationale for transfusing blood. Because it's Excellent. like a mini transplant, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> I love that. A mini I love transplant. That's what I'm taking yeah, away. Yeah, me like, too. To think about mini, thinking of blood as a mini transplant, I think really yeah. kind of hit home to me. It's a mini transplant with no anti rejection medication. Yeah, it is. So it's like high risk mini transplant. Exactly. So I actually think that that's for me is a one, a take home message that just giving blood and doing it without really thoughtfulness mm -hmm. is a problem or doing anything that may decrease. So taking too much blood mm -hmm. or repeating blood tests often, that sort of thing. So being thoughtful about our triggers and being thoughtful about what we are doing for the patient, mm -hmm. I think is really important and doing that whole do not do harm, yeah, I think, totally. thing for me is, is a huge thing. And actually comfort. Comfort that I don't need to jump at something and that I'm backed up by evidence that says that it's okay to leave somebody at that level if they're not symptomatic. Mm -hmm. And thirdly is just to let people live. Like don't be, be organic in your approach with mm -hmm. people. If they're doing okay, let's not mess with it. Let yeah, them yeah. just do what they're doing keep and just myself. keep an eye, yeah, exactly, okay. and keep an eye on them um, so that we step in when it's appropriate to step in and we step back, yeah. um, I think would be my take homes. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank this has you. been so great. We may pick your brain again in the future because every time you talk to me, I keep thinking, oh, we should ask him to talk about this. So uh, we may be coming knocking on your door again. I would love yeah. to chat yeah, again. Yeah, that would be great. We aren't in the kitchen of knowledge. No, we're not. We're in Andrew's we're kitchen, in the, a, kitchen office of knowledge, I guess. <laughs> office of knowledge. Yes, today. it is. It is yeah. indeed. Well, right. thank you very thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. Yay. Uh, okay. Yeah. And then we'll see you next month. Next month. All right. Bye. Bye for past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.